morning and welcome to Rising. We've got another terrific show for you today, especially since Brianna Joy Gray is back in studio. It's nice to see you, Brianna. <laughs> it's good to be back. I've I, missed you. I've missed you too, Robbie. It's, yes. it's been tough to be away, especially with all the excellent news and interviews you've been doing while I've been gone. Oh, thank you. Well, it's glad, great to have you back. <laughs> well, today we have Washington Post reporter Dan Diamond to fill us in on the U.S. response to the monkeypox outbreak. And later we'll have Norman Solomon with us to discuss why progressive group Roots Action is campaigning to ditch Joe Biden in 2024. But before we get into all of that, President Biden said, well, he doesn't think a recession is imminent while taking questions from the White House press pool. Let's listen. And Mr. President, we're getting right. GDP numbers on Thursday. How worried should Americans be that we could be in a recession? We're not going to be in a recession, uh, in my view. Uh White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre reiterated the sentiment, as well as responding to questions of what the administration's definition of a recession is. Next week's a very big week for the economy, so I read the CEA blog. Is the White House trying to change the common definition of a recession because next Thursday the GDP numbers coming out are going to show that we've been in a recession? So let me say this, you know, the strength of our labor market along with the other economic uh, factors is what, what we generally see in a recession or even a pre, a pre, what is not what we generally see in a recession or even a pre-recession because we're seeing the strength of the economy and the labor market. So that's really important uh, to note that there because those are uh, key elements as we talk about that, as folks keep asking us about that. So Americans across the country are back to work uh, at a historic level. 21 states, the most in history, have unemployed rates, unemployment rates at or below 3%. Uh, that is an important number to note. 14 states uh, are now at their lowest unemployment rates since this series began in 1976. And last month, the unemployment rate was a new low in eight states. So again, the strength of our labor market, along with the economic indicators, is not what we generally see uh, as we talk about uh, recession or even pre-recession. The job for the three months trend, the growth of job growth in the U.S. is, is shrinking, is decreasing, and 7.5 million people, a growing number, are, are multi-jobs, meaning they have to work more than one job to afford a living. So is jobs really a good indicator then? Oh, look, Here's what I would say. We've always talked about the strength of our economy. We've always start, talked about how historic it's been, and we've always talked about the transitioning, right? The transitioning to more stable uh, and steady growth. And so to your point about uh, the job growth there, this is what we have been kind of stating for the past uh, several months. I mean, these discussions always show the limitations of this format where the adversarial press job is quite reasonably to ask adversarial questions and to get the spokesperson for the administration to concede that something's wrong, as it is. And the yeah. job of the spokesperson for the administration is to deflect and deny and find the silver lining and say, well, you know, I'm going to create a new definition for what a recession is. And by this new definition I've just invented on the spot, look at the employment market. I mean, yes, but it, I, I completely agree. It also, though, seems to me to show the limitations of some of the metrics we use to decide how the economy is doing. The fact that you can take uh, cherry pick numbers and say, well, jobs are technically stronger, or this, that, and the other. Or look at, you know, the Dow is doing well. You know, there have always been these indicators that had very little to do with how people are feeling in their homes. You know, jobs numbers can be great, but if 
the wages aren't keeping up with inflation as they haven't done because we haven't had a minimum wage raise in, for the longest time in American history since 2009, then the reporter is right. People are increasingly taking multiple jobs, picking up a gig shift, driving Ubers, doing multiple things to try to make that gap close. And looking at these kind of flat numbers that have historically been used to, yes, make political pitches for political reasons in contexts like these have never had any relationship to how people are feeling. And I think, I've said this before, it would be nice if occasionally people in Korean's position would level with the public and say, look, the numbers are actually strong in this X, Y, and Z way. But I know that a lot of people are still suffering, and our job in the White House right. is to try to fix that. And, and we're the, on it. And the, the, the food costs yeah. are such an important who cares if it's an economic indicator or whatever that means. Right. It's something that people actually care about. It's what they're signaling they care about. Yeah. Um, so th we have to get that under control whether or not you want to characterize the economy as good, which I think is wrong, or yeah. fair or bad. Yeah. But even CNN's Chris Saliza is criticizing Biden's spin of what a recession means. I get that why they want to do it from a political perspective, yeah. but like you can't fake this. No, I was just I was laughing to myself with the in my view thing that Caitlin highlighted because it's like, well, in my view, I should be drafted into the NBA. Like the in NBA, my view, NBA executives I would didn't make agree with that. Of dollars, right. right? Like it doesn't really matter what you think. It's there's a there is a technical definition two straight quarters of negative economic growth. They clearly believe that that is likely to come to pass later this week. They're trying to pre-butt it. To your point, we get why they're doing it politically. Right. At the same time, we have these terms for reasons. You don't have to like it. Of course they don't like it because the economy, you know, Joe Biden's, a textbook, Joe right? Biden's handling of the economy was at 25 or 30 percent in our most recent poll. Like, yeah, it's a problem for them. This adds to the problem. But you don't get to change the nomenclature in the middle of a campaign because it doesn't work for you. Well, and again, your voters are going to feel what they feel in their lives. Exactly. No matter what, right. no matter what you exactly. say. In my view, Chris Azilla should absolutely be drafted into the NY and NBA. It would be exceedingly entertaining. Meanwhile, Walmart is cutting down prices as shoppers are forced to spend money on necessities only. And per CNBC, more Americans plan to tap into their Social Security benefits early due to the country's general pessimistic economic outlook. Well, it ain't good. <laughs> it's not. And look, to be clear, there have been Republicans who have tried to structure social programs that by design, draw on people's Social Security payments. I believe it was Ted Cruz who countered some of Bernie Sanders' proposals, saying, sure, we can give money to child care. You just got to take it out on the, on the back end. And people were rightly upset because Social Security is so crucial, and we can't turn a blind eye to these kinds of things just when it's coming at the, the, as a consequence of Democratic proposals. You know, Joe Biden was a person who actively tried to cut Social Security, and the left, Bernie Sanders, uh, made a, you know some strong statements, probably the strongest statements he made against Joe Biden in the campaign, over his feeling that that was not a core American principle that needed to be protected. And now that people are kind of self-selecting into doing the worst thing because they're so desperate, I think this is the time for Democrats to stand up and show what they're really made of. This should be the kind of issue that distinguishes Democrats from Republicans. Well, and Trump also broke. Trump broke with some Republican orthodoxy on that front as mm. well, the kind of Paul Ryan era mm. uh, consensus on getting entitlement spending under right. control. And Trump, Trump just said, nope, to all right. of that.
look, if, if you want to preserve those programs, though, I, I would think, I think, you need to spend within your kind of limitations on other fronts. Maybe we turn off the endless spigot of weapons sales to Ukraine. Maybe we look at uh, trimming the defense budget. Maybe we look elsewhere for things we can cut back so that we can, if we're going to make an investment in Americans and protect Americans who need help, okay, fine. But we can't just spend endlessly on every project. And, that, and Congress doesn't care about that. They, both sides just complain about the spending when the other side does it. But then when they come to power, there is no control whatsoever. And so it's hard to take anyone in the Democratic Party. Well, I mean, the Democratic Party doesn't really even talk about <laughs> controlling spending very much. The Republican Party lies to you that it right. will ever control spending when they won't. They never would. Yeah. You have even leftists voting to expand the military budget, to your point. I think that's absolutely right. You have billions of dollars spent to bail out the airlines who turn yep. around and yeah, what, are what not are they doing do? their job. Right? We were going to keep all those pilots. Nope. Right. Nope. They Forced retirement for you. So yeah, I, I hope that voters are looking to these kinds of things and that there are some politicians somewhere that are making these kind of distinctions evident as people head to the polls I hope so this too. fall. I look forward to hearing more from you, Robbie, in the form of your radar coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, there was some recent reporting on the incarceration of Glenn Maxwell, who viewers know was convicted of helping to facilitate sex trafficking and procured underage victims for Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Maxwell was sent to prison, but according to CNN, she has actually been transferred to a low-security prison in Tallahassee, Florida. Prison is still prison, of course, and I want to be clear that being incarcerated at all is very difficult, no matter the circumstances. There's a huge difference between low-security prisons, which often house white-collar criminals, people not involved in violent crime, or people who are understood to no longer be violent, and maximum security prisons. Inmates incarcerated in minimum security prisons have a lot more freedom to move about. They have more activities they can participate in. They probably have access to better restrooms and recreational areas. And obviously, they might have more comfortable bunks. And also, it should go without saying, when you're in minimum security prison, the other inmates are much less of a threat to your physical safety. There are fewer violent incidents in minimum security prison versus maximum security prison. Now, Glenn Maxwell is set to serve a 20-year sentence, and there's no question it's better for her, for anyone, really, to be in a minimum rather than maximum security. According to the New York Post, the one she's headed to has movie night, it has yoga, it has much better conditions than her accommodations in New York, which mostly consisted of solitary confinement. Now, I don't relish consigning people, even very, very bad people, to suffering and misery, and so I don't really have a problem with Maxwell being sent to minimum security prison. But what about everybody else? What about, I don't know, Ross Ulbricht? Let's talk about Ross Ulbricht. In case you're unfamiliar with his case, Ross Ulbricht was the creator of Silk Road, a dark web marketplace. Silk Road used Tor for anonymity and Bitcoin for transactions, and it allowed people to buy, trade, and sell, well, anything, including illegal things, including drugs. Now, for creating this site, Ross Ulbricht got a double life sentence plus 40 years without the possibility of parole. The judge threw the book at him because he pleaded not guilty. He dared to defend himself against the idea that he was responsible for everything that transpired on Silk Road. Here's some footage of my colleagues at Reason Magazine, Zach Weissmuller, discussing the case. At that fateful hearing in 2015, U.S. District Judge Catherine Forrest told the courtroom that she had decided to go well beyond the mandatory minimum of 10 years because Ulbricht had taken a philosophical stand against drug prohibition. The Silk Road's creator thought that he was better than the laws of this country. This is deeply troubling, terribly misguided, and very dangerous. 
This is a brilliant young man who committed no violent crime and who will spend perhaps the rest of his life in strict prison confinement. Now, many libertarian-leaning political figures, including former representatives Ron Paul and Justin Amash, as well as many principled civil libertarians on the left, including Noam Chomsky, have described what happened to Ulbricht as a travesty of justice. Ulbricht isn't a danger to anyone, but guess what? He has to spend, he has spent the last five years in high security prison. He shouldn't be in prison at all. His sentence should be commuted along with anyone else currently incarcerated for nonviolent drug crimes. And then what about, of course, Julian Assange? Assange is currently incarcerated at the notorious Belmarsh prison in London. He's been there since April of 2019. Belmarsh is a maximum security facility with appalling conditions for prisoners. Inside Belmarsh, Assange's health has deteriorated. His partner, Stella Morse, and his brother, Gabriel Shipton, have both documented for the media the miserable conditions he faces as he awaits possible extradition to the U.S. Assange's only crime was letting the people know true information that the government wanted hidden from us. That's it. Today is actually the 12th anniversary of the publication of the Afghan War Diaries. Here's some old footage of Assange explaining that. Because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. Julian Assange engaged in the honest work of journalism, of informing the people, and he suffered tremendously for it. There's no cushy jail with yoga and arts and crafts waiting for him if he's brought back to the United States. So I want to be, I want to be very clear that prison is prison. Prison is horrible, even if it's the nicer prison, which now Glenn Maxwell is in. I don't know. Maybe that's called for. Maybe they, in their judgment, they determined that was the right place for her. But the... Con but you know, she was convicted of really, really horrific crimes of, of helping Jeffrey Epstein victimize, sexually victimize underage women. And this is how she's going to spend the next 20 years of her life or however long it ends up being, while people who should not be in prison at all. Yeah. Maximum security. Yeah, Solitary this, confinement. This is a great radar, Robbie. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it is difficult to talk about these things when you're kind of broadly against our hyper-ramped-up mass incarceration system. To try to, like, pick winners and losers within that system, it's hard to, you know, you want to avoid sure. sounding like you're validating any part of it or sure. kind of undermining how you know, horrific it is, even in its best incarnations. And I really appreciate your sensitivity in trying to, you know, thread, thread that needle. But I think you're absolutely right. The disparities in sentencing, the disparities in where people get sentenced, not just the length of time that they spent in jail, has so much to do with your access to expensive attorneys sure. versus public defenders. It has so much to do with the wealth you come into the criminal justice system with. Whether or not you spend your time pre-trial before you've been convicted of anything in a prison like Rikers, in a jail like Rikers, or on the street in your own home has everything to do with whether you can afford bail. And you see these inequities all over the place. And I think pointing out some of these high profile cases, the difference between people who have a lot of media attention um, 
like Assange versus Jelaine uh, mm -hmm. uh, shows you exactly what the incentives are, even among people who are famous or notorious. And the punishment for people who dare to try to actually do what our system right. is set up to allow you to do, which you're supposed to be able to do, which is actually prove your innocence. Yeah. If you if you dare, if you have the audacity not to accept a plea deal where you have to uh, admit your guilt and then maybe your sentence isn't so bad, if you say, no, I deserve a, a trial and I, I don't think I'm guilty, you get pun you get destroyed for that. It's the worst decision you could ever make. Yeah, I I'm actually reading a book right now in preparation for an interview by Michael Thrasher, uh, who has written about uh, the viral underclass, the history of the COVID virus and the HIV virus and other kind of viruses and how we've responded to it as a country. And he profiles this famous uh, defendant who was charged with knowingly spreading HIV. He was a college kid. There's some dispute about how knowing it was, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But he was offered a plea deal of 10 years. He says, no, this isn't fair. I'm going to fight it. And ends up being put, I think, for, he was, could have been consecutive 30-year terms, I think, that they, so that he could, um, yeah, he could serve them consecutively. So he was in there for 30 years. He'll get out in his 50s, right, for doing something that people who murder folks, people right. who actually commit murder right. get shorter times than he did for, Trans, I mean, something that's obviously bad, but right. not commensurate with what the, the charge is. And it had everything to do with him having a public defender who was just up not up, not up to the task. But public defenders are underfunded. It's not about their personal feelings, obviously, but we just don't put money yeah. into the systems we have to protect the most vulnerable in this country. On top of which, we have a criminal justice system that is punitive when politically people get on the wrong side of the aisle. And it's disgusting that, you know, facilitating the rape of minors doesn't get you the same kind of punitive attention that doing journalism does. And I'm not naive. I'm not a prison abolitionist. Um, I, I think the conditions in all prisons should be generally improved because we should we don't sentence people to be tortured, but there are dangerous individuals out there who need to be locked away. Maybe they're danger even to other people in the prison. Fine, I, I, I concede that these circumstances exist, but that's not, that's not look at the, the individuals yeah. who are put through these procedures are so often not violent or not violent anymore or never were violent. So it's just so ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you for that, Robbie. New reporting from the New York Times reveals that the federal government initially adopted a wait-and-see approach to the monkeypox outbreak for weeks, authorizing more vaccines to be shipped from overseas only after cases were growing exponentially, a slowed response that echoes the initial days of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Washington Post, Dan Diamond, reports that the White House will soon name a national monkeypox coordinator. The Biden administration has yet to come to a decision on whether to declare a public health emergency, this as the U.S. nears 3,000 confirmed cases of the virus. Uh, this comes as the World Health Organization has declared monkeypox uh, outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. National health reporter at the Washington Post, Dan Diamond, joins us now to give us the latest. Welcome to Rising. Rhea, Robbie, thanks for having me. So, Dan, help us understand why uh, it would be useful for the government to establish a national health emergency. I saw a colloquy on the news recently about uh, how some states don't have to offer up reporting data and how it's difficult to even track and know what the outbreak, how it's manifesting or what the numbers are because there is no uh, mandatory reporting guideline that the uh, state of emergency might help with that. Is that the extent of it or are there other reasons that uh, one might hope that the White House go, goes ahead and declares such an emergency? Well, Bree, you're getting to the question that animated debate inside the Biden administration these past couple of days. 
There are officials like CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. I interviewed her on Friday for Washington Post Live, asked her about the monkeypox response. She said they have, quote, no data about vaccinations uh, for people against monkeypox because CDC just doesn't have that authority. So one argument is that a public health emergency would then kick that authority into gear. But beyond that, there are not as many arguments as one might think for the public health emergency. It might make it easier to speed treatments as they're developed for monkeypox, for instance. We saw this during COVID, that it cut through bureaucratic red tape. But there are officials also acknowledging that a public health emergency may be more symbolic than actual. And that's another reason why it has been held up rather than immediately following the World Health Organization move. I mean, this is tremendously frustrating coming on the heels, obviously, of COVID-19. You'd think here was a test run for agencies like the CDC and the FDA to, you know, really get their stuff together to be prepared for this, uh, an outbreak like this, which is still at the, and while it's a really horrible disease, is, you know, less, uh, there's less potential, it seems like, for, you know, system-wide, countrywide kind of uncontrolled spread. Uh, But... Why do the agent, both agencies seem to have been caught flat-footed here? And you know, there's uh, long lines for uh, mostly members of, I think, only exclusively members of the LGBT community who can get the vaccine right now. And, and again, maybe that's that's correct guidance, but there's not nearly enough vaccines to meet demand. I know, you know, the FDA. There was some issue with in- inspections of the plant. Uh, in Europe where the vaccine was being made. You know, what is going on with the delays for addressing this issue with the urgency it needs? Yeah, let me let me unpack a little of that, Robbie. So I think first you're right that this is not COVID. It doesn't spread like COVID in the air. It doesn't kill like COVID. It does have significant pain for people who contract monkeypox. They can have lesions that scar. And the number of cases is rising in a way that suggests the U.S. does not have control overnight, it looked like we are getting up near 4,000 cases here in the U.S. after being at a couple hundred just a month or so ago. So like COVID, it does resemble the lack of control that we saw in early 2020 and the agencies struggling to get their hands around it. We reported at The Post, my colleagues Fetty Nirapal, Lena Sun and I, about a month ago that FDA hadn't inspected these doses in, in Denmark that could be used as people are queuing up for vaccines here, could be used, but they've just been overseas waiting for these inspections. That does resemble in many ways the slow bureaucracy we saw in 2020. Mm. There is a sense of deja vu among health officials I talked to, public health experts on the outside. And the fear isn't that this is going to be like COVID and hundreds of thousands, millions of people are gonna be testing positive for monkeypox every day. It's more that monkeypox which historically did not spread in the United States, that it is now going to get a foothold, that we will be one of the countries that occasionally has to beat back these monkeypox outbreaks, currently concentrated in the gay and bisexual community, tends to spread by touch or close proximity, but that doesn't mean it will always stay in that community. It could find its way into a school where kids might be playing and sharing the same toys. That is the fear long term. It's not that this is going to kill people like COVID. It's that we have allowed another virus to get a hold here in the U.S. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I saw some <clears throat> Republican legislators talking about the incidents, uh, incidents of monkeypox among children and making some inferences about the connection between the fact that it's being characterized largely as, you know, a gay disease and how are the children getting it and trying to get some political traction out of that kind of implication. But I've also heard folks saying that the fact when it is being found in children is less often being identified as monkeypox. It's being thought of as a, a hand or identified as a hand, foot and mouth disease. And that across the board, folks are having trouble getting medical practitioners to see them, to treat them, to identify what's going on. People are taking to TikTok with sores all over their face, talking about how difficult it was for them to get medical appointments, how when it became clear that it probably was monkeypox, they weren't admitted to see their GP. It does seem like this is another instance of our fragmented um, you know, Swiss cheese healthcare system also not being up to the challenge here. You know, do we do we see different kind of patterns emerging in different countries where people do seem to have better access to getting care more quickly and even having the disease identified accurately more quickly? That's a great question. I was talking about this with a Biden official last week that in the U.S., because of federalism, we have less ability from a national level to, say, get data from states or to get all kinds of things integrated because there are essentially 50 different health departments or more than 50 when you think about the territories too. At the same time, I, I think you're right in that some cases of monkeypox aren't getting identified because they're not turning into lesions. They're just rashes that doctors don't really know how to identify. Maybe they're not in the gay and bisexual community. And the inferences that you mentioned that now that children have been found in the US to have contracted monkeypox, there was an inappropriate, I, I think, illusion that bad behavior led to that. It seems likely that these are just kids who were in houses uh, or, or household transmission with adults who had contracted the virus. And we know that monkeypox can spread as simply as if someone is, say, using a towel to clean dishes or, or a bath towel uh, getting out of a shower, and there's just contact that can linger on that towel and can mm. maybe get someone else infected if they pick up that same object. So with monkeypox, mm. we are confronting both a fragmented US health system and then also lots of information gaps about who can be infected and how. Right, and I, I've personally changed my mind like three times on this news story as I've, I've tried to follow the developments because first it sounded like when they were describing Yes, that this is, you know, this can spread from contact and touch. It's not like, well, if you're, you know, in very close contact with someone who's infected or, or ill or symptomatic, you, you could very well get it. But then it, as, and but we knew the spread was originating in this kind of, in, in you know, the gay or bisexual community or people who had attended specific um, events. Then it, while, while it continued to largely stay in those populations, then it seemed like, well, maybe it really is a, a in, in overwhelmingly a sexually transmitted scenario, but so that was my thinking last week, and now, but now it looks again, and it sounds like people are saying that it is right to characterize it as something that can spread outside, that is, is most likely to spread, I guess, under those circumstances, but can spread to the general population through uh, maybe something more than casual contact, but through you know through contact, incidental contact. Right. So, Robbie, I caught your interview with Dr. Fauci, where you asked him what he regretted about early 2020. And I think one thing we should make sure with monkeypox in 2022 is we're not jumping to conclusions or saying things that might later be proven wrong. In terms of how monkeypox is spreading, 
it does resemble in some ways a sexually transmitted disease because as it is spread through the gay and bisexual community, it's often been spread to sexual partners, which makes sense if this is through touch. There's a lot of skin-to-skin contact with a sexual partner, but it also could be spread at a dance party if you're dancing on the floor or you're just staying at someone's house and interacting with lots of the same objects. We do know that monkeypox is overwhelmingly in the gay and bisexual community, but we also have every expectation that it will continue to spill out to more people just as it circulates more and more in the general population. Yeah, that's what's so difficult about this, that there's a double-edged sword of identifying that a disease is disproportionately affecting a population. You want to be able to identify to protect that population, make sure that population is getting you know, vaccines, et cetera, disproportionately or first. At the same time, you're wary of it becoming a stigma that, one, puts that marginalized population at risk for, you know, public contempt, potentially even violence. And then also, you know, makes other people who are outside of that group feel like they are immune. Like you don't want people feeling like it's just not my kind of an issue because I do not belong to that group. And it's difficult because there are, you know, my, I was arguing, I was saying this to uh, Robbie before the show, you know, I don't, in, in COVID especially, I rarely touch any. I rarely touch anybody these days out in the world. I don't go as many places as I used to. You know, if you know whoever you're dating, you're married to. If you're in a monogamous situation, that means outside of that, you have very little physical contact unless you have like a family. Um, and so I think that you know what is happening here is one of the few populations that's still getting any action is become at the core of this. At the same time, that's a population that has historically been very. Um, disciplined about using PrEP, getting vaccinated, doing all of these other kinds of things so that they don't have various kinds of diseases spreading through the population. And you see this in the very long lines of people who are very interested in getting the monkeypox vaccine. And the issue here isn't any kind of irresponsibility that can be put on a given population. I think it really is the government's irresponsibility in failing to get an adequate number of these vaccines, even though we saw this coming down the pike. When can we expect that to change? Well, you you raise a lot of important issues. I think in terms of the gay and bisexual community, the calendar was just really unlucky. There were people who had been cooped up for a few years because of COVID. Pride Month came. People were excited to get together. Those parties appear to have been a factor in the rapid spread. Again, not necessarily sexual partners, just people Mm -hmm. partying, dancing up and down next to each other. And then in terms of stigma, my colleague Fennin Nirpal had a great story on this about a month ago, that you do want to warn a community, but you don't want to stigmatize that community. And public health experts have been trying to thread that needle. I think that in the gay and bisexual community, there is a lot of awareness breed, but then you do have people saying, well, I don't need to know anything about monkeypox. It's a gay disease. It has nothing to do with a specific population. It just happens to be spreading in the gay community right now. That does not mean it won't spread in other communities. And when it comes to that population, which has been disciplined, as you say, in terms of HIV AIDS lessons, that that gay and bisexual community has been estimated that the number of people who might need vaccines is actually bigger than the amount of high quality Genios vaccines we have available. So even though more are coming, Brie, from overseas, I do think we're going to head to a point where there will be a vaccine cliff in the coming days or weeks. There won't be as many of these vaccines available as people will want, and it may force us to use what's seen as a less good vaccine for fighting this outbreak, something called ACAM 2000, which we have in the stockpile, but has has more risk associated with it. 
we just don't have enough vaccine for what may be coming down the pike. Well, that, I think that's going to emerge. That's a problem we have to fix because just as I thought it was uh, cruel and wrong to you know force people to stay cooped up for the years that ended up being with COVID, I think we can't reasonably expect uh, people to not socialize. Yeah, you can't lose hot girl summer. <laughs> <laughs> I was letting loose this summer. It's been a miserable pandemic. It's time for, for fun again. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to see you. Thanks so much. And this is not COVID. Yeah. Yes. Thank goodness for that. Former Indiana Congressman Stephen Beyer was among nine people arrested for insider trading. This was revealed on Monday with the unsealing of indictments in New York City. The news comes on heels of news that Paul Pelosi, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's husband, of course, made some questionable trades of his own, prompting a bipartisan call from Congress to ban stock trading altogether. Here to discuss more on this, our reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester, and White House reporter for Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. So, Julia, help us understand the nature of this inside information and how it came to be disseminated, disseminated allegedly, to these nine people. Right. So I think what happened was initially this congressman, his former congressman, Stephen Beyer, was um, supposedly playing golf and he uh, was relayed information by uh, uh, a T-Mobile executive and then he made a move in terms of, uh, you know, how he insider traded. And I think you are really seeing this issue. It's gotten a lot of traction among Republicans and Democrats in Congress, and it's actually split sort of both parties as to where to go from here on this. You have some lawmakers who are very much in favor of banning insider trading and others who are not uh, as in favor. But I think it shows you, I think, sort of how this uh, issue is bipartisan, not only bipartisan, but also I think it, it, it essentially is separate. It's a, it's a way to separate uh, lawmakers, the political elite, the business elite from everyday Americans, giving them an mm-hmm. advantage and many find that enough. Yeah, Philip, what's the Republican uh, temperature on this? Because Nan- you know, the, Nancy Pelosi is a little bit associated with uh, the purchasing of stocks right now because of her husband and also because she kind of notably came out in favor of allowing co- members of Congress to trade stocks. So she's kind of stuck to that. So Republicans could you know, use that to have a kind of glorifying moment if they really came out against it. But then, of course, there have been a number of Republicans who have been caught in kind of insider trading um, scandals. So what's, you know, what's the mood on the right? Well, let's take a moment and back up here, because I don't think a lot of us were paying particularly close attention to this former congressman from Indiana's fifth district. He's generally unremarkable, a politician whose time uh, came and went during the Bush administration. And that is exactly the problem. That's precisely the problem, uh, because he's much less prominent than someone who is in leadership. Instead, this is an individual who served on the subcommittee that literally regulated telecommunications. He served on the committee for about a decade. And then what does he do when he gets out of Congress? He immediately goes to K Street and works as a lobbyist. Through that milieu, through that sort of revolving door, he allegedly picks up a uh, good, hot insider tip over a golf game and now he's getting 
run up on these charges. We're talking about a relatively uh, small amount of money, uh, a portfolio that is small potatoes in comparison to some of these other options trades that we are seeing. He's being accused uh, of profiting, I think, $350,000 from, from what we learned in the AP report. The question is, if this guy is just sort of a backbench member of Congress who, uh, after he left the Hill, had enough of a heads up sense on where to make some cash lobbying. What is someone who is going to be incredibly plugged in? What is someone who perhaps could have control over the House calendar? How much more uh, valuable is the information they are going to have access to? And that's why I think this case, um, you know, none of us necessarily were waiting uh, for bated breath to figure out what was happening to this former congressman from Indiana, but it's potentially a test case. It is potentially a shot across the bow for some of these other members of Congress. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, when I was a corporate attorney, I was frankly blown away as a, as a young lawyer about how common these kinds of things are. And the fact that these nine people got caught is really just a reflection of that, how this is like a small potatoes incident of a much uh, broader phenomenon. At least one of the other nine people named in the indictment was the boyfriend of a young woman who worked on the deal, who apparently looked through her laptop unbeknownst to her and got this stock tips. And this is something that we're warned about, right, as an attorney, to keep your things private, not to share even passing information with the people you're dating or your family members are around, because this kind of thing is so common, but also can be kind of difficult to track down if the person has a more regular history of trading these kinds of stocks. It's more the anomalous spikes that stand out. I want to come back to you, Julia. You know, is there going to be appetite, given the fact that this, this kind of thing, stock trading at all outside of your kind of retirement pro portfolios, is kind of anathema to the average American? Do you think there is going to be the kind of political appetite to start paying more attention to this in the ways that our elected officials in particular have privy to information that they're exploiting, um, you know, in order to get an edge over the ordinary American public? I think you're going to start to see that appetite, and we really start to started to see it last year when you heard those talks about a potential uh, insider training training bad ban on members of Congress, including their spouses. And the fact that you know, unlike the um, congressman from Indiana who Philip was talking about, you know, he's relatively unknown former congressman. We don't know much about him. Most Americans probably don't care. However, when you have someone like Paul Pelosi, the Speaker of the House's husband, that becomes an entirely different situation because she is in leadership. Uh, they do have that influence and that power. And I think when you see those more high-ranking members or their spouses getting tied into this issue of insider training, trading, that's when you start to hear uh, more about it. You know, I remember before the, right before the pandemic, I believe, um, Richard Burr, uh, a, a senator from North Carolina, Kelly Leffler, then senator from Georgia, they were um, insider trading and there was a bit of a uh, much ado about that. So, you know, I think the more high-ranking officials you see tied up in this, the more of an appetite there will be and more coverage, quite frankly, of it. Right, and I remember that conservative media was pretty hard on, uh, just I mean, justifiably so, uh, on Burr and Loeffler. Uh, Tucker grilled one or the other on his show, uh, which showed that to the extent that conservative media is is listening and very in tune in a lot of cases with what the base wants that would demonstrate that the conservative base does have hostility to this kind of thing going on uh you know phil d does that mean this is you know this is something that republican politicians would be well advised to be talking about banning you know uh, 
members of Congress from trading stocks? Uh, certainly, I think that there's a hope that good government would be good politically. I'm not certain if this is something that we're going to see members of Congress run on other than uh, sort of some some talking points. Um, but this is definitely something that they should take seriously. And I think there's an appetite for a politician who does more than just sort of mouth drain the swamp, but actually could back some of this up. Julia nailed it a, a second ago. Um, because I think that there is already an impression that Congress is full of crooks. And there's already this impression that, oh, well, some businessman went to Congress and then after you know a couple terms, he left as a millionaire. That negative perception is incredibly damaging to the institution. And I think that it does take some of these more prominent cases. Perhaps it takes a spotlight on an individual like Paul Pelosi for people to to step back and um, say, all right, well, the, the usual graft that we can sort of let go at the edges, that, that's, no longer, uh, that's no longer acceptable. I think that at some point it's going to take a pretty high profile scalp for things to change. Um, right now though, I mean, you've got a lot of platitudes. You've got a lot of people who, you know, uh, like to say things like drain the swap, you know, go after waste, fraud and abuse but it's very much kind of a, a talking point. And so I think that there's going to have to be some real teeth put behind this. Um, you're going to have to see uh, someone who who does tap into, I think the, the very real sense of unfairness that, that comes with some of these unfair advantages in Congress, but do so in a way which isn't just, oh yeah, like drain the swamp and you know blind trust. You're gonna need someone who's actually going to have to um, crusade on this issue. And maybe it does mean nailing someone high profile to the wall. Well, Julia and Philip, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Physician and former President Donald Trump's White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, said she knew from the start of the pandemic that vaccines were not going to protect against infection. Take a listen. I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection, and I think we overplayed the vaccines, and it made people then worry that it's not going to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. It will, but let's be very clear. 50% of the people who died from the Omicron surge were older, vaccinated. Although I guess if 50% were old, well, the other 50% were the opposite then, right? Right. But so, I mean, I don't know if she meant that it wasn't going to protect, protect as much as they claimed yeah. or like absolutely in the way that some other virus, uh, some other vaccines that we're familiar with, you know, are an absolute protection against getting certain kinds of diseases like, you know, smallpox or whatever, these kinds of things that we've eradicated. But certainly... The point is that there was an overstatement of what exactly yeah. the vaccine were yeah, going no, to what, do. What, very much. What is she talking about? Where was she then? All the t they should have said that. Um, I, now I guess maybe she was she she resigned or she uh, retired. Mm. I think for violating a social distancing thing that she still had a family gathering or something mm. of that nature. That is what it was. So maybe she was out of the picture then when the vaccines were coming out and everybody like, mm. yeah, get the vaccine. That's that's the end of COVID if you get if you get, you get the vaccine. But why she she wouldn't have set expectations lower throughout during her time there just makes yeah. no sense. I mean, I'm trying to reflect back because there was almost immediately this sense that Americans were not going to be compliant and get the vaccine, even when 
Trump was still president, even when it was very early days and there was a lot of fear and concern. There seemed to be this kind of baked in expectation that you couldn't scare Americans away from the vaccine, that you had to do things like tell them it was going to end the lockdowns, end the virus, end, end transmission, that it was all going to be over in a short period of time. And immediately I remember there were these, there were these conversations about um, compliance rates, you know, how, how, I mean, obviously the vaccine didn't come out until Biden was president, but about, you know, what percent of people right. they were going to need to get it for it to be able to work and how it wasn't going to be enough with 75 or 90 percent. We had to get to herd immunity. But, but that all ended up being wrong. And There's I, no yeah. level at which it's enough it's, because it's it so does not odd. prevent infection. But the choice is so odd because it did feel preemptive yeah. in some ways. And I don't know. I, I have to look at how things went down in other I mean, countries. look, it is true that the vaccines held up very well against transmission of the original strain yeah. and then it well and then it was a combination of things that eventually the protection does wane somewhat and then delta uh, evaded the the protection against transmission and omicron really invaded yeah. it and and then that was just kind of the end of of the game so you you have to just make the argument that well you should get it um because it prevents uh, it helps with severe hospitalization Which is good enough and death. For me. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I think would have been probably good enough for a lot of people. Well, and it's a good enough argument for older Americans, especially or immunocompromised Americans. But I, they were, and then they were also promising it, but everybody needs to get it because that way you won't give it to someone else. Right. And in exchange, no more masks for you, no more social distancing. You can go back to work. You can have birthday parties again. And then they said, well, just kidding. Never mind. Don't keep doing all of the following our guidelines. But we are glad you got it. Well, and it's still going to spread infection. But Well, let me ask you this, Robbie. Would it have made more sense to you, and would you have preferred a world where they didn't overstate the efficacy of vaccines? They were very clear that it's about you and protecting yourself mm -hmm. from the worst outcomes if you do get the virus, but also couple that with advice that we are going to, in fact, have to wear masks as the first line of defense for longer. It's, there's, I'm not going to lie to you about there being some into it, but honestly, if you don't want to get the vaccine, uh, get, get the virus, you can't rely on vaccines. You're just going to have to mask up and social distance. Well, but then you get into the, the uh, issue, and, and Dr. Fauci himself uh, conceded this on this show yesterday when we interviewed him, that the the cloth masks, the kind of masks for that sure. were required for most people throughout most of the pandemic, because virtually nowhere, maybe some college campuses, maybe some environments have required the KN, the N95 and KN95 masks. Mm -hmm. But 98% of, of mask requirements have been of the just any variety of masks, cloth masks, or maybe the, the ones with, with, uh, the, with the filters, whatever they mm -hmm. said no to those. But standard cloth masks. Have, cloth masks have been the ones recommended. They and Fauci himself said yesterday, that's not doing any good. Yeah. That's not sure. doing any good. So then what, what, if they're annoying and they're not doing any good. For sure. But, but Robbie, that's, that's, that's why. cloth masks. And, and there are many people who have not follow the CDC's recommendation and follow yeah. their own common sense or what the medical professionals in their lives have advocated for and have been using KNIs. Ironically, when we had mask mandates, I was more inclined to use the flimsy little surgical masks because I was doing it because someone told me to. Mm -hmm. You know, how I got to get an Uber, I just got to have a mask on me at all times. And I would go through them more quickly. So I would use the, the, the worst, least effective mask. After the mandates were over and it was just me looking out for myself and my personal responsibility, I exclusively, exclusively only use KN95s. Not just before where I would use them when I was in close proximity with someone for a long time, like at the nail salon. Like, and, I, and I wonder if there's similar incentives that exist more broadly, where if someone's telling you to do it and you also don't trust the source, you're going to kind of lowball. You're going to kind of, you know. I, just given how much... Previous guidance on masks so many has turned out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm st I, 
I want to wait for more information. It would not, I'm not like asserting this. We don't have the facts yet. Uh, Dr. Fauci said again in the interview on this program that he thinks there is evidence that these masks are working to limit the spread in some sense. How much? Is it a lot? Is it a little bit? It would not shock me if we, we learn in the yet. future that yeah. they're not doing all that much given how how contagious these strains are, in which case... And there are other things, too, right? I remember a time when there was an an active conversation about ventilators and getting schools better ventilated and getting more, you know, local little HVAC machines in in office places and stuff. And at the time, in the early days, it was, well, how are we going to ramp all that up? There's supply chain issues. It'll take time. Right now, we just got to social distance and mask. But two years plus into this, it feels a little ridiculous that we don't have more of a robust conversation about how there could be kind of institutional fixes to some of this stuff instead of doing the things where you're expecting kindergartners to keep the masks on their face. You know, why isn't there more investment in the school infrastructure to make them at least as safe as an airplane is while it's in the air? Do you know what I mean? We need more investment, clearly, in a vaccine that is actually going to wow. lower transmission. That would be nice. And maybe one uh, relying on not on mRNA technology, uh, just simply because I know a lot of people are, are skeptical and hesitant about those specific vaccines. So something that they were not as skeptical of that had a better track record might uh, might that might be something you could get more people to take or different people to take. Yeah, I mean, I, I should hope that they're trying. <laughs> I don't have. Oh, we did okay. Let's hang up our coats. The FDA couldn't. We're going to talk about monkeypox later, but the FDA couldn't be bothered to inspect the monkeypox uh, vaccine factory on a on a tighter schedule as this epidemic is beginning to rage among certain subsets of our population. Yeah. Nasty, horrible disease. We are going to talk about it a little bit later. We are having. So no, I have no faith. Redux on the (laughs) monkeypox. No no faith that our people are prioritizing the right stuff. Um, Well, Senator Rand Paul has said that Republicans will investigate Dr. Fauci should they regain control of Congress in November. Dr. Fauci responding to that for the first time today. Let's watch. This, which is politics. I know one of your least favorite subjects here. Uh, Senator Rand Paul, a Republican, uh, and some Republicans are talking about what they might do if they retake the House or the Senate in the fall. Senator Rand Paul says of the Republicans, if they retake the House, one way or another, if we are in the majority, we will subpoena his, your records, and he will testify in the Senate under oath. Uh, your reaction to Rand Paul and others saying they're going to investigate you if they take power? Well, there's, there's no reason to do that, but if they want to, go ahead. My records are an open book. They are talking about things that are really bizarre, John, like crimes against democracy by shutting down the government. All I have ever done, and go back and look at everything I've ever done, was to recommend common sense, good, CDC-recommended public health policies that have saved millions of lives. If you want to investigate for me for that, go ahead. And when Bach and I talked to him yesterday, he, you know, he took that line that, look, what I say is just recommendations. Mm-hmm. So you have, if you have problems with these policies, take it up with your local officials, your state governments, et cetera, which, you know what, fair enough, because they were just recommendations. Uh, but what was frustrating during the pandemic was how the CDC's word did just become law in blue municipalities, that we, we were just well, going to do what the CDC said. that's what's interesting. And is there, are Republicans kind of falsely conflating the CDC with Fauci as an individual? You know, do they want to investigate the CDC or are they trying right. to use 
Fauci as a stalking horse because there's some political power in doing so. And, you know, to be fair, Democrats did put Fauci up, up front and center, and frankly, so did Trump. Everyone put Fauci up front and center and kind of exploited him as a positive figure who people had trusted in the early days, and now everybody's kind of backing away from that. So maybe it is fair to have perceived Fauci as being the leader on what the CDC was actually doing when the critique is really of the CDC. But it does feel to me like this is enough, if this happens, will be another show trial, like like worse, you know, like a small version of the one six fiasco. The only, I mostly agree with that. The things he recommended were policy choices mm -hmm. that I disagree with, but they were policy choices. With the exception of the funding of gain-of-function mm -hmm. research, that clearly does need more investigation. And that, again, we don't know. We need to know more stuff. But yeah. the potential that the kind of research of which he is the foremost public advocate and has defended funding, and then he quibbled when we talked to him about it with, you know, what, is, what does gain-of-function even mean? He tries to do this definitional dance. Whatever. Manipulating the virus to make it more lethal or more contagious, harder to confront, harder to deal with. Uh, we don't know if that caused this pandemic. It seems certain that it could in the future cause a pandemic just like this. So that that would rise, in my view, to the level or could potentially rise to the level of not just a bad policy choice, but something criminal. Uh, so that I yeah. want more, I, obviously not in a show trial kind of, right. you know, the Senate is the worst people to do this kind of thing. But. I mean, we did learn at one point that the government knew the virus was airborne long before they were telling us that it was mm -hmm. airborne. And I think those kinds of revelations go a long way toward liability and people's trust in government. And I, and I, do, I do think it's important to get that stuff out. So to the extent that we, frankly, could find out. I don't know if it's by investigating Fauci or versus the CDC, but if we could find out that, for example, they knew had more information about when masks were useful, when the virus was airborne, when trans, you know, what the virus's effect on transmission was actually going to be, while they were telling us that that was why people should get vaccinated, I do think that will having that stuff come out is important to reestablishing public. Trust. And also, there's I don't know that there's been sufficient accountability for the CDC's mistakes in terms of testing, which were just catastrophic. And I'm not saying that those are on Fauci specifically, but someone's head should have rolled for the There should have been massive, massive yes. sanction for that because it was such a mistake. Yes. A mistake that we, again, seem like we're making similar ones with monkeypox, but we'll talk about that later. Senator Chuck Grassley claims highly credible whistleblowers have come forward to accuse the Department of Justice and the FBI of undermining and discrediting information about Hunter Biden in the lead up to the 2020 election. The whistleblowers claim that intelligence about possible wrongdoing by the president's son was mischaracterized as likely disinformation and then prematurely shut down during officials uh, by officials during initial investigations, which is not really surprising because you did have what those 50 former law enforcement, among them FBI agents, who who published like an open letter saying this has all the hallmarks of Russian mm -hmm. misinformation, disinformation. So it's not at all surprising that also the actual still connected to the apparatus of the state law enforcement bodies felt similarly and mm -hmm. treated it similarly. 
Um, so then the question is, was that in good faith or not? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the accusation is that there are certain kinds of facts and incidents that trigger an FBI investigation, and that didn't actually happen. And the idea of the FBI picking winners and losers in a political context as charged as an election campaign is frustrating. I would argue that this is the kind of story that ultimately doesn't really matter when it, with respect to Hunter Biden. You know, generally speaking, the kids of presidents don't matter that much, mm -hmm. even if it's embarrassing and awkward, unless and it is proven that Joe Biden had some um, nefarious dealings or inappropriate dealings with his son and getting him access to power, money, et cetera, geopolitics, whatever, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. However, absent that, I would say this is a nothing burger, except for that, now the story is the cover-up. Yeah. Well, and uh, it is not great. It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the Department of Justice and the FBI and these important law enforcement agencies, these important agencies that are supposed to keep us safe and be monitoring for threats and all that. It does not inspire a lot of confidence in them that they can't tell truth from falsehood. Correct. That they, that they don't know or are so politically myopic or so partisan at this point, so much the kind of deep state mentality that Trump railed against, they can't tell if this is if this is true or not or they see something that looks true they their initial uh read is to say well yeah but it probably came from russia so we should just just ignore it i mean what how could that that could hurt the nation if like a a more a story of greater national security implications came about and it had some partisan spin on it that it was damaging to democrats and they just chose to ignore it because of uh, because of russia that's that's the whole problem with this russia disinformation stuff it's not the idea that governments including our own don't try to interfere in other governments' elections. It's a tale as old as time. Right. The problem is we do and, bl and brag about it as our <laughs> officials have been doing <laughs> on TV lately. Excuse me, sir. I am very good at regime change. Yeah, it requires yeah, a very yeah, big brain. Yeah. <laughs> it takes two to coup. <laughs> Oh, Lord. But that, that aside, you know, um, it, it, part, it doesn't inspire confidence in the FBI. It doesn't inspire confidence in the press. And, and overall, you know, the misinformation, the, the gist of it, a lot of it has been the quality of things that are being characterized as misinformation are also things that are inconvenient truth. Yes. So I remember at one yes. point being asked during the Bernie campaign about how I felt that there was, you know, a Facebook campaign labeled Russian misinformation that was targeting black people and talking about how the government was very unfair to black people. And I was like, well, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, it, yeah. I, I understand yeah. that the, per the motives of yeah. the people who are promulgating this information aren't my motives, but I don't know what you want to say about the fact that it's true. The, same, the, the thing to me, it seems to me the way to address this misinformation, this, these bad facts that are going to hurt you electorally and as a country, are to go ahead and actually do right by your citizenry. I mean, there were a lot of people who argue that we got the Brown v. Board decision and some of the civil rights successes that we had in the mid part of the last century because Russia was making such a big deal about how poorly America was treating its black population. Okay, that seems like a good outcome a to point. me. That's a great point. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember uh, a media outlet, I can't remember, I think it was CNN or MSNBC, but I can't remember which one it was, so I won't say it was either because I can't remember, but actually showed up to the house of some Trump supporter who had like uh, shared a, a Facebook uh, post or group or something mm -hmm. that was one of these Russian origin farm bot type things. And, you know, they show up to her, I'd be like, 
are you are you aware that you are the misinformation that you're she's like but i'm a real person like i i, I, I it's not like a westworld yeah. thing where like I, yeah. i'm a i'm a host to, we're, we're both fans of westworld and we're talking about it before the show it's true. but it's just this very weird like these are real people with real thoughts about something so you can't just discount it right. because there's some murky origins as there were i you know murky origins ish in the Hunter Biden story, although the the the, the on the record story for how this laptop came into be possession of the New York Post, with the, which eventually published it, has has still not been. No, there's no other there's no other narrative for what happened. Right. No one has put forth any evidence whatsoever that anything other than exactly what they said happened is what happened. Yeah, and it's been it's been two years. It's been two years. So we probably know what happened. Um, so it's not uh, another another uh, example of our law enforcement not uh, not really. Decorating themselves in yeah. Uh, glory. Yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's frustrating because you don't want to seem like a useful idiot, obviously. But it's also true that there have been so many bad faith attacks about, uh, you know, characterizations of things as misinformation. At one point, Bernie Sanders was a Russian asset because he won Nevada. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's how it went down. This, the, the, the weekend after that, or the days after that primary victory, it suddenly became... Bernie exists to help Russia. Bernie exists. And, and we can't live in a world where basically establishment politicians are able to use, liberal establishment politicians right. primarily, in a more pointed way, are using the specter of Russian threat, real or imagined, to advance their own, frankly, corporate agenda. And that's what we see over and over again. And again, you're right. It does not have, give you any faith in the FBI. It doesn't give you much faith at all in government. And the media, to the extent that it largely fell for it, also doesn't seem to be the fourth estate that's going to correct the shift. It's the new red scare. Yeah. The new red scare. Yeah. Representative Cori Bush was asked yesterday whether she wants to see President Biden run for a second term in 2024. Here's what she had to say. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? She's got to go. Yeah, I, you know. Uh, that's an easy question. It's not going to take long. Do you want to see Joe I, Biden I don't run? want to answer that question because we have not. That's not. Yeah, I don't want to answer that question. Okay. Um, I mean, he's the president. And he has the right to, to run for a second term. Absolutely. That's good. Right but I don't want to. I don't, I don't want. I'd rather you not do that. Okay, answer so you got like two minutes to be in the car. Yeah, I know. Right. I got to get to the. Well, thanks very much. The other thing. Oh boy, Progressive Political Action Group Roots Action has announced their newest campaign hashtag, Don't Run Joe, to stop the president's uh, renomination re for the Democratic ticket in 2024. The campaign is set to launch the day after this year's midterm elections. Organizers say, quote, unfortunately, President Biden has been neither bold nor inspiring, and his prospects for winning re-election appear to be bleak. With so much at stake, making him the Democratic Party standard bearer in 2024 would be a tragic mistake. Here with us now to expand on the Don't Run Joe campaign is co-founder of Roots Action, Norman Solomon. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. All right. So, you know, Cori Bush's answer there is a bit of a mess. It's obvious what she thinks. She's a progressive. Joe Biden was not her choice. She supported Bernie Sanders in the primary. But there does seem to be this power held even the over the most progressive uh, progressives in Congress that they are not allowed to say out loud what so many Americans have articulated in polls, which is that they don't want Joe Biden to run. You know, what success do you see your, your organization having in helping to break through the Democratic stranglehold on who gets to decide the Democratic Party nominee? Right now, in the last two weeks, since we announced don'trunjoe.org, 
there's been a breaking of the dam. The mm. logjam is beginning to fall apart. And the gap that you refer to between the polling of the Democrats in the country and uh, the punditocracy that covers uh, politics out of Washington, and for that matter, uh, Democrats in Congress, that gap is just becoming huge. It's becoming more obvious. So I think that the contradiction will be, certainly has to be, should be resolved by the voters having their say. And the voters are clearly wanting Joe Biden to get out of the way, uh, that he should announce that he will be voluntarily a one-term president. And that opens up the possibility of a progressive nominee. Clearly, Biden would not, based on his record, be a progressive nominee. So that's where our future is, to get the logjam named President Biden out of the way for 2024. And then, as Roots Action did in supporting Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, progressives could go at it and get a real progressive nominee. That's not a easy thing, though, right? I, there's not an obvious uh, there's not an obvious successor to Joe Biden. Period. Let alone a progressive one uh, for his. Despite you know Joe Biden's uh, la- falling popularity with a lot of key demographics, it doesn't seem like the Democrats have someone else who's super popular uh, to offer up. Unless you're you're going to say that. Bernie Sanders should go at it again, despite, you know, maybe the age issue with him. So, so what is, you know, what is the strategy to actually find someone other than Biden to be a candidate? Well, the strategy first is to do grassroots organizing. If it's a resolution from the top down, then we're going to have a sort of boilerplate process and Biden's going to be the nominee. It wasn't an easy thing in 1967 when Lyndon Johnson was going to be renominated for president of the United States. And it took first uh, building movements from the grassroots. And second, at a certain point, in that case, Eugene McCarthy as a candidate, stepping forward and uh, going into the snows of New Hampshire and the rest is history. We had basically an abdication in terms of the next term. Uh, there's an old song that goes, everyone wants to go to heaven and nobody wants to die. And we are going to have to bring about some courage from some progressives in Congress to begin to speak out. And that courage, as always, or I should say almost always, is not going to come from Capitol Hill. It's going to come from people who live around the country, who see what's at stake. And that's a big distinction between the way the pundits have been going and this Don't Run Joe movement, because we're aware that the problem is not age. The problem is policy and the problem is record. When today, Joe Biden could cancel student debt, totaling $1.7 trillion with a stroke of a pen, he can't blame cinema, can't blame mansion. He's not doing it. He's not using the bully pulpit to address the poverty and near poverty, the healthcare crisis in this country. He's not really going at the climate emergency. He intentionally threw Build Back Better under the congressional bus by breaking his previous pledge to make sure that it would go in tandem with the infrastructure bill that Republicans wanted. And so time after time, we're seeing that we're not getting the leadership that we need out of the White House. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, that there are specific things that Joe Biden could do that he can't offshore responsibility onto Manchin and Cinnamon for, including student debt cancellation. There are promises that he has broken that he had control over, like the choice to bifurcate the infrastructure bill. Those are solid points. And I think that those are galvanizing to people who really understand that that is 
you know, those things were in Biden's purview. My concern is that given the nature of mainstream media, the average American really genuinely does believe that Biden is not at fault. I mean, the average Democrat, rather, doesn't believe that Biden is at fault, even if they are frustrated with his performance and rate him low in terms of polls. And the number one tool that establishment Democrats have always had at their disposal is threatening people with the Republican alternative. And while I really appreciate the idea of you know, it needing to be a grassroots effort. My concern is that even people who have demonstrated their willingness to engage in the kind of grassroots campaigns that Bernie Sanders won might be reluctant to do so and have hope and even risk, you know, the spoiler outcome if they don't see a plausible candidate that could rise to the challenge and actually replace Joe Biden, who would be better than Joe Biden. And so I wonder how you've been addressing people's concerns that, you know, Joe Biden is the best person to beat, uh, you know, whatever Republican is chosen by the Republican Party. And also, you know, if you have people in mind who would be uh, good progressive candidates to draw upon in this moment. Well, first, you're not going to get anywhere if the logjam doesn't move. And as long as Joe Biden is the logjam, then we don't have the possibility of a better, hopefully a very, very much better candidate. Uh, Don't Run Joe is a campaign to get the logjam out of the way. We're not a stalking horse for somebody else. Clearly, Roots Action's record is clear. We worked very hard at grassroots levels, uh, much of it digitally, uh, to get the nominee in 2016 and 2020 to be Bernie Sanders. That's our politics. But we know that those politics can't prevail in terms of the nomination until we have not the status quo Joe running again. Okay, but hear me out. You know, I'm, everybody who knows me knows that I'm extremely supportive of this, and I don't need an alternative to not, <laughs> not be supportive of Joe Biden. But the reality is, you know, there could be, say, if your campaign were successful, a Pete Buttigieg presidency instead of a Joe Biden presidency. And some people might say, well, at least Joe Biden's at the end of his political tenure. Do we want to saddle ourselves with a, a Buttigiegian dynasty, the likes of which could I wouldn't rival? worry about that too much. I think you're going to end up with the DeSantis <laughs> dynasty if All you right. do this. But well, well, either way, I mean, those lose are too the, much sleep. Those, those, I think that either those alternatives are, to someone like me who's a progressive, either of those alternatives is kind of um, galling. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and could yeah. cause people not, if, if not to want to support Joe, to still not necessarily engage with a campaign like yours. How do you reconcile that? Well, we're walking through an algorithm that uh, nothing is guaranteed. As you said, the, the mainstream media at every turn, they're blocking and have been blocking an understanding of what is at stake with progressive politics. I think there are existential threats right now for, for poor people, for the healthcare crisis, for the uh, climate crisis, and so on and so forth. So of course we can't depend on mainstream media. There's no guarantee that we will win future battles, but if we don't win the first battle to get Biden out of the way, we know what is guaranteed. We're gonna have a race for somebody who would be defending an indefensible status quo. And progressives have a dual responsibility all the time, which is to to defeat the racist, the xenophobes, the misogynists, the right wing, the neo-fascist Republican party. We always have to have that as one of our two main priorities. The other is to fight for a progressive agenda, uh, Medicare for all, demilitarization of the police, cancel student debt, get the president off of his duff, as the saying goes, to use the bully pulpit to fight for people instead of corporations. 
Hmm. Well, Norman, we really appreciate you joining us. Provocative stuff. Thanks. Thank you. So this is interesting. What you're watching here is footage from a graduation ceremony at the University of Michigan's medical school uh, this past Sunday in which a large number of the students, the graduates, walked out in protest of the featured commencement speaker, Dr. Kristen Collier, who has anti-abortion views, Christian and anti-abortion views, and uh, they were protesting that. And it sounds like roughly 70 of the 170 incoming students uh, walked out. I, I'm, I'm sorry, okay, so this wasn't a graduation, this was incoming mm. students. Um, mm. It's, uh, uh, and so they walked out in protest of that, uh, which, you know what, so I don't know how you feel about this, probably similarly. They have every right to protest. The University of Michigan is a, is a public school. I graduated from the University of Michigan. Um, my uh, graduation speaker was Barack Obama. Hmm. Um, did you walk out, Robert? I did not walk out. <laughs> uh, I don't know that anyone did anything. Uh, <laughs> the campus loved Obama. He, I'm sure. It was, it was like uh, a celebrity was visiting. It w was a celebrity. But if students had turned their backs or walked out, that would have been their right. Um, I, they might have been mocked for doing so, or they might have been subject to social stigma. But they, they have the right to do that. And now, it, now, I don't know if they were also, as is the case in many of these circumstances, often there is an activist contingent on campus calling for the speaker to be disinvited. It would have been wrong to disinvite the speaker. Uh, the university said, we do not disinvite speakers and pointed out that she was not, she was not talking about her abortion views. It was kind of yeah. one of those you know, affirmational graduation or, or commencement or whatever the ceremony yeah. was, you know, kind of generic. You know, be a good student and a good yeah, person. Yeah, look, speech. my understanding is there was a petition circulated to, to try to get a different speaker. It wasn't successful. Um, you know, Collier is someone who, in the grand scheme of American politics, might not seem especially controversial. She was raised secular and says she came to religion later in life. And um, at a recent tweet from May 4th, she said, you know, holding on to a view of feminism where one fights for the rights of all women and girls, especially those who are most vulnerable. I cannot lament the violence directed at my prenatal sisters in the act of abortion done in the name of autonomy. She wrote that in the, in the wake of the draft Dobbs' opinion mm -hmm. being leaked. Now, oh, it's anti-abortion. If there's a there's a conversation about why the University of Michigan chose this particular person, kind of knowing as a PR position, knowing that this was probably not going to go over well with students who are disproportionately younger and disproportionately pro-choice, you know, that's for the University of Michigan to decide. But it does kind of foreground an interesting conversation that I had uh, recently on my podcast about the extent to which you know, should should the left reckon with the reality that there are a lot of people who have these more ambivalent attitudes toward abortion, if not as strong as Kirsten, who is anti-choice, people who might not walk out because they kind of empathize with the idea of having more complicated feelings about making that kind of a decision. Now, I do think that people are rightly frustrated with the idea of a doctor not also emphasizing the idea of bodily autonomy. And so saying done in the name of autonomy seems to undermine the idea of bodily autonomy as a principle itself, which seems 
odd for a doctor not to kind of balance the Yeah, bodily autonomy has kind of been undermined somewhat these days. I know you don't like when I bring this up. No, that's fine. I was stuff. never pro-mandate. So I it's bet never there was a lot of uh, restrictions on how they were permitted to gather in, in that space. Um, sure, but Rob, I mean, the, the argument is that there are obviously degrees of bodily autonomy. You know, if you make me stop at a red light, that is prohibiting my movement and you know, free exercise fully of my bodily autonomy. If I have to go through TSA, that's another level of my bodily autonomy and masking, oh, blah, blah, blah. Let's... But, you know, the idea of being forced to carry a child for nine months to term with all of the attendant physical effects that happen even in the best of birth, from stretch marks to pelvic floor weakening to not incontinence to all of the other kind of things, much less what happens if you have an ectopic pregnancy or if the baby is breached or if you lose too much blood in childbirth. I mean, this is legitimately a huge undertaking that I would argue is much more significant than having to wear a mask intermittently when you go into a public space. And many people on the broad left, liberals, and many conservatives who supported upholding Roe are frustrated not that there is a that there might not be some arguments to be made about when life begins and what should society protect and all of that, but that that conversation happens in a vacuum without recognizing that there is another, an actual fully formed human being at stake and where there's a trade-off being negotiated between those competitive it's, rights. This is why it's a very difficult issue because it involves a conflict of rights in it. A, a, a conflict that can't be un that it just ha it occurs. Well, this is why so many people say, okay, then it should be an individual choice. And the frustration right, right. here is for her to tweet this after Dobbs, which she's really articulating, is that she supports individual states prohibiting abortion within but a view their territory, that, you know, a view, regardless. But in terms of her speaking, that's a view that I don't know, thirty percent more of the country agrees with. It's not an outlandish view. You might well, disagree no, with it, but she. Six, I mean, thirty percent total. Maybe, but 60% of the country supported upholding Roe. And even the, even the Dobbs, if you remember, the whole point of the Dobbs case, the question that was supposed to be actually presented to the court was whether or not Mississippi's, I believe, 15-week abortion ban was constitutional. Even the litigants in Dobbs weren't trying to under, you know, they weren't trying to end Roe. On the, on the papers, on the documents. Now, ultimately, the lawyers demanded that the, the court only take it up to decide up, I'm down, I'm saying it's not row. a fringe view. I can't imagine why you can't, you know, hear from, a, and I, I don't think you're actually arguing that, yeah. but to hear from a speaker who holds this view that's not even a particular fringe view, or what if it was a fringe view? Who cares? What does it matter? We well, have to agree. Yeah. I mean, no one, obviously no student, there's no way for all the students to agree with everything the speaker thinks. So this just creates that who gets the vita? It's just the loudest and most annoyed activist students. Well, let me who, ask you this. It's a medical school. So I think there are implications here that are different than if it were just, you know, some PhD program or something like that. Because these people, arguably under the Hippocratic Oath, are required to do what's in the best interest of their patients, many of whom are going to be pregnant women, who, depending on what state they're placed in, you know, for their residency, are going to be places that pro prohibit life-saving interventions for the mother. So, you know, is the real question here, should the University of Michigan... Well, wait a minute. There's the a debate over school. whether we're prohibiting, li I mean, the, the ectopic pregnancies. I, I take your point that maybe there will be confusion, maybe there will be bad... I'm not, you know, saying I support these laws, but to ex the laws going into effect specifically exempt uh, ectopic pregnancies. I don't think that's All true the ones for, the, for every state. So far... I, I, don't so know that, I don't know if that's true for every state. We have already seen examples of people who, because of at least the ambiguity that these, this case has thrown over the medical 
practice have delayed interventions that had and resulted in a negative uh, medical outcome for the mother. You know, more pain, more blood loss, more stress, and more risk of actual death to all involved because there was this delay. And so, you know, I think there is an interesting question whether or not you should, you know, the best way to raise these complaints is via a walkout, is via some other kind of petition. I don't know. I think there's many ways to express your concern. But I do think that there is, it's more than just kind of like some um, petulant rebellion or desire to have your administration adhere to your own personal politics. When we are in a position where one of the cases that a lot of pro-abortion advocates have been, have been making is that this is a decision that doctors are best qualified to weigh in on. This is, should be a decision between a doctor and, and their patient. And the fact of the state intervening is the fundamental problem. And so to have the doctor speaking to incoming medical students who seems to support the state coming between a doctor, she, whatever their doctor. views. Right. She is a doctor who's saying that she is not, she doesn't think this is an ethical practice. Uh, I don't know exactly what she thinks. She might think it's akin to murder, so she doesn't perform yeah, so, them. But the question isn't whether she performs them. It's right. whether or not the University of Michigan is making some kind of statement to their incoming class of medical students by asking a woman who I very publicly goes down holds a really these kind weird of views. Look, that's... To say that you're endorsing or co-signing whatever, because then you have to find... That's going to end up in a world where the speakers for these kinds of events are just always the most... Like boring, milquetoast, inoffensive not, kind of fair. people. If I mean, someone, she wasn't even speaking about abortion, so why have right. someone necessarily? I mean, then it's why not her doesn't views matter on at abortion. all? We can just let her speak. Maybe, maybe yeah. it doesn't matter at all. But I think, you know, I think it's worth having a conversation about what the decision making. I would be curious as a student what the administration's decision making. You know, it, it does this. I mean, events. Barack Obama had already, I'm sure, droned some people absolutely. by the time he was speaking. Is the University of Michigan a endorsing drug warfare by having him speak? I don't think so. I, well, I think if students were to protest and people were to walk out on, based on that kind of a principle stand, I would entirely support it. Well, sure, right. I, and I, I support these students and, walking and, out. And I, I just wouldn't hassle the administration about finding a different speaker because it seems like you, there's no way you can appease everyone at that point. Or well, no, but maybe we should have we should have an expectation that people are not going to sit around for you know when you go when you speak at a school like there are going to be more protests especially look you can't you can't in I'm the week the after Roe gets overturned not expect there to be some level of social agitation because an enormous precedent that's been in effect for almost fifty years that many women relied on that many people probably wouldn't be sitting in this classroom without you know. You're going to have social consequences, and my only concern would be to not engage directly with what the underlying issue is here. What is going to be the line in medical institutions that are training America's young doctors about what the Hippocratic responsibilities are with respect to abortion? And is that going to have to be become? There is no separation of politics and science the way that we've been pretending. But I, I would not time. say that the medical community would be improved by enforcing a kind of you can only have one view of this issue, uh, an issue that is one that is hotly debated in which the country, the people in the country and the laws and have a, a wide range of intense different feelings yeah. about. I mean, maybe the best situation would be if you have someone who apparently is known or notable for her views, views on abortion, to actually have a conversation about it and invite panelists with mm -hmm. contrasting views and actually have them discuss it. Part of the problem here is that there is this kind of passive, you know, kind of performativity to all of it because this 
this event was not about abortion and it wasn't about the speaker's abortion views. So there's just a lot of speculation about all of it. And I don't think it, you learn a lot from this. If this were a debate, I would have been a lot more critical of the idea of people walking out. Because I'm like, a debate? Great. Let's mm -hmm. actually unpack this and have an opportunity for this woman to defend her beliefs. As it was, fine, walk out, because it just is about the symbolism of why the university would choose to seemingly endorse this position that obviously is not shared by the majority of students. And so we can speak at the University of Michigan and half the students can walk out because of you and half the students will walk out because of me. <laughs> I look and we'll forward speak to talking to a, about empty, an empty auditorium. <laughs> Great. It'll be just just like this. <laughs> just like this. <laughs> the Daily Show spinoff, Full Frontal with Samantha B, has been canceled by TBS. The late-night comedy and satire show ran for seven seasons. In commemoration of Full Frontal's end, video director for Senator Bernie Sanders fondly remembered this moment from the 2017 White House Correspondents' Dinner. Welcome back to the show. This election and its aftermath have raised some existential questions, like how far under the bus should Democrats throw women and people of color? And if the Republic falls in the forest, does it crush Don Jr. before he shoots an endangered animal? Oh, women and people of color famously maligned by Bernie Sanders. I, as his former national press secretary, you can imagine it was a very painful one. process to work for the man. I just don't know how our country will go on without <laughs> Samantha Bee's commentary. Um, I, I don't even remember my life before this show <laughs> began. Uh, it's, it's just been the you know, most important show. Uh, it's a show that's on, and I absolutely could have told you what network it was on and what it was before we started talking about it, uh, because I have a lot of knowledge about it. It's so popular. It's, it's impossible to, you know, you see billboards for it. Uh, people stop you on the street and ask, did you see uh, Samantha B uh, last night or whatever? It's just, you know, it's hard to even go a few steps, really, without uh, confronting someone uh, who is a fan? So it's really uh, <laughs> she. She planted the seeds of her own this. irrelevancy by doing bits like that, yeah. by being so out of touch with the zeitgeist that she thought that you know wearing blazers and going raw raw for Hillary Clinton was meaningful in that kind of a political context. That clip, you know, I believe was from, was from 2016, and it only got staler after that. I mean, 2016 saw half the Democratic Party wake up and realize that, you know, there could be a candidate that actually was against endless war. There was a candidate that actually could be full-throatedly for the kind of social safety net programs that defined the Democratic Party and made it such a powerhouse in the middle part of the last century. And she was standing there spinning crucial time, uh, crucial moments in the lead up to the 2016 race, I remember. I think it was maybe just two weeks before the, the general election. She spent an, almost an entire segment making fun of Jill Stein for being in a folk band. I mean, it just, it, it's so incredibly out of touch. Yeah, it's the epitome of sort of girl boss feminism, right. Clintonism as the, oh yes, this is surely a winning political strategy, this incredibly shrill and off-putting <laughs> and not ideologically compelling kind of Bernie shit. Sanders is a man, and therefore he is throwing women under the bus by right. not being a woman, unlike Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's right. the whole sum right. substance of that kind of a bit. Well, journalist Glenn Greenwald uh, certainly is not so much of a fan. He mourned Full Frontal's cancellation, ju just as I did, I think. He wrote on Twitter, quote, this program was typically dead last in the ratings for late night shows, barely attracting an audience size of a mid-level YouTuber. Even the barely visible Don Lemon has more people watching. This show will be missed by uh, a few dozen uh, liberals. Uh, I guess it is 
a kind of example of the decline of you know the the sort of late night liberal talk show. We all have fond memories of the uh, the John Stewart era, right? The, which yeah. in, in which an era in which his very cutting criticism of George Bush, the approach to the Iraq War, was must-see TV, mm-hmm. was really the voice of, not just a liberal voice, but a voice of everyone who, was, who really thought these wars were pretty stupid. And it was, it was funny, and it was on point, and it was political, and it was a winning recipe for him. And then ever since no one has duplicated, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah, because people have shifted online. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of talk about people need to log off and get offline. But when it comes to a lot of these late night shows, I think they should definitely log on and see what the commentary is like on YouTube because that's where everybody's flocking and with good reason. Things move faster and media ecosystems are smaller um, in, in ways that avoid, because in fact they're avoiding all of these you know, big folks on the cable news cycles who kind of filter all the information through. There's a lot more happening in the kind of ideological uh, you know, paths that people get funneled into are a lot more discreet. You can't just get on TV and say, <laughs> Republicans, am I right? That's not the world we live in anymore. And, you know, in that tweet thread, Glenn listed a bunch of late night show rankings. I had no idea that Greg Gutfeld was like number two. Oh, yeah. And in, in the overall I know, I've been show on a show. He's ranking, killing it, yeah. The average liberal is not yeah. tuned into that at all. And I, I wouldn't be familiar with his clips if I didn't see them on YouTube all the time. Yeah. I'm certainly not watching them on the And Gutfeld news. styles himself in a kind of, he views the show as a, as a sort of lay, a conservative answer to a late night liberal uh, talk show. And he is succeeding by yeah. any, any definition. He's a massive, massive audience. Yeah. And I, my take on that is like, you have to be willing to have takes. On YouTube, when people aren't being filtered through a bunch of producers, perhaps, I don't know what the exact um, causality is, but it does seem like there is a rawness, a willingness to offend, even though I don't obviously agree with the, the politics of his humor or his takes, you're not seeing that kind of punchiness on many of the liberal shows, even the successful ones. You are seeing it on the internet, or I think people feel confident to be a lot more free. So I'm not surprised by what's happened with Samantha B, because she really was a dinosaur even among that space mm-hmm. of old media. Yeah, but uh, what will we do without her show, Brianna? <laughs> so sad. How will the world go on? This might be this might be the the end. This well, there's, look, it. there's less competition for uh, snazzy blazers in the women's section. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. snazzy, <laughs> snazzy blazer lady. All right, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be digging into the record-breaking heat wave sweeping the country uh, with our expert panel. Now, finally, in our own country, so now I can know what the temperature means because of this this Celsius. How can you even tell? <laughs> Just kidding. This is a fun. <laughs> segment where, uh, where I'm angling for, for Samantha Bee's uh, hour, clearly. Well, she's Canadian, so she gets the Celsius. Oh, forget <laughs> it. I'm out. Well, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, including where they tell the temperature in Celsius. <laughs> Catch us on the Plex TV app, and we will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, guys.